Hey, everybody. Welcome to Terror Talk with Shannon and Kathy. Hello there. Hello. Today on the show, we are going to talk about, well, you tell us, Kathy. Last time. <laughs> uh, we're going to talk about Anne Rule uh, oh, okay. a little bit, uh, who I came to know through reading the book, A Stranger Beside Me, yes. which uh, is a really great book. And more interesting about her relationship with Ted Bundy than Ted Bundy's story, really, because as you and I have discussed, Ted Bundy's story is whatever. Yeah. But the fact that she found out years in that she was really good friends with uh, Ted and didn't realize that who he was, who he was and what he was doing. After that, I became interested in just the work that she had done and uh, passed away in 2015, but she has so many books and the one that we're going to be talking about today is called Last Dance, Last Chance. This was Anne Rule's 21st book. Uh, her career focused on researching stories literally about liars and conscienceless cruelty. I think she loved to research these really like, um, what's the word that I'm looking for? Like the deception and the lying. Like a lot of her books are around finding these these folks and telling their stories and the people that were affected by by their recklessness. So she noted that once a lie is successful in giving the murderer what he or she wants, it grows and multiplies, burnished and perfected until it works every time. Mm. So Rule also stated that um, detectives she would meet would share their investigative techniques as well as their gut feelings about the murder with her. So she was, you know, worked in the industry. She had great relationships with folks that did this for a living. She became a true crime writer. She's she's known as the queen of true crime. Yeah, for sure. Her books were translated into 18 languages. She was a former policewoman and signed a contract for her first book in 1970. And this book was The Mystifying Murders in Seattle. She had no idea that the killer would end up being her friend whom she worked on a crisis hotline with. His name was Ted Bundy. Mm -hmm. And she went on to write the book about his story as well as her personal relationship with him. Um, and that is the book, The Stranger Beside Me. What I love uh, very much about what she did with this book too is she did a couple of different additions to it so the first like hundred it didn't start as a hundred but the first so many pages of the book are uh, women who wrote in and because she because Anne had been following Ted just by nature of having a relationship she knew what state he was in at mm. certain times of of the year before she knew he was the one killing and so after when she figured that out and she started writing this book women would write in and say hey i was in seattle and i'm just going to make up that you know in such and such year i was driving down this freeway i was cornered by a man who you know just stopped in his car and then eventually could that have been ted and she'd come back and say that's exactly where he was and you ran into ted bundy and so it ended up being that over a series of like uh several years she would continue to re-release the book with more and more of these victims. She ended accounts. up being like a real hub for a lot really? of information. Yeah. yeah. And a lot of these people got some closure and knowing that it either was or was not him or the likelihood of it anyway. So she was born in 1931 and passed in 2015. Um, but her books literally continue to be bestsellers and her writing is timeless as these stories are still as intriguing and disturbing as they were when the murders happened and was 83 when she passed. So I know before I get into this book, Shannon, I know you had a few things that you wanted to add. For yeah. Today. I wanted to let everybody know that we were contacted by a publicist at Simon and Schuster to, promote or at least read and look at some of Anne Rule's 
work because what they decided to do is they decided to do a bunch of reissues because there were movie versions of some of her books coming out this year. And so although she's, you know, obviously a New York time bestseller and sold 30 million books to date and like massive, massive force in true crime genre, obviously these uh, popular crime files series that she's done these, they're like portable trade paperbacks. And Mm -hmm. there were three upcoming reissues this year. And so when, and then they were made into lifetime films. And so what the publicist was doing was promoting that getting these books and the knowledge of the movies into hands of people who could talk about them and our, you know, news outlets type of thing. We're not a news outlet, but so what happened was, is we were asked if we wanted some, some books to read. And so I absolutely said yes. And we received, I think four of the books and this is the first one that uh, has we've read and Kathy read it last chance last dance it came out in February of 2023 and the movie of this book it's called 12 desperate hours and it also came out in February mm. and it's adapted from this book and it stars Samantha Mathis. I don't know if oh you my gosh, remember really? her. Pump yeah. up the volume. Pump up the volume. <laughs> she's been in so many Lifetime movies. And so she's in this. And uh, yeah, so I watched the movie. It's also got David Conrad, who plays, I think, the, the father, the husband in it. And then it's got Harrison Thomas, who is the bad guy cool in it fun so i'll talk about the movie in a little okay. bit but i wanted to mention that because we did yeah. receive a free copy of the book yep so we like to disclose those kinds of things but the movie wasn't free and um you know <laughs> samantha mathis thank you and for reading that. it was not free she but, played the wife uh yes yes she played yes Debbie. exactly she played the wife and so i just i also just want to thank cassidy at simon and schuster for sending yeah. us the books always uh I, I like doing these reviews so yeah all right so let's get into this family a little bit the the book uh last dance last chance is about the devastating story of a marriage gone terribly wrong uh in 1988 Anne Rule interviewed Anthony Pignataro and as she explored what she would describe as the labyrinth of lies that define the story of Anthony and Deborah Pignataro what once seemed like the happy ending to a dream romance sadly wasn't which really you know now we know why it was on Lifetime, because that's pretty much every Lifetime movie. So who was Anthony Pignataro? He was a cosmetic surgeon and a famed medical researcher whose ostentatious lifestyle in Western New York State gave those the impression that he was very successful and competent. He had a way of, you know, a lot of window dressing. He knew how to talk very well. He came from medicine. Uh, he also presented, you know, we I've mentioned this on other episodes where, you know, sociopaths, um, narcissists, they present, uh, they have a family as a ruse, right? It's what makes them look normal. And some of the folks that I know, like the Iceman killer that you did an episode on, yeah. we talk a lot about how the family really is, is one of the biggest distracting pieces. Mm-hmm. Right. And also, you know, it was the, t- that was what you did at that time. And his parents were still married. And uh, you'll see that his mother is, is very influential in this whole thing is regarding how much she sort of enabled his narcissism. 
he, you know, so he presents as a ha- having a happy family. He's a happy family man. Uh, he presents as being honest. He's charming. However, his wife, Debbie, would soon uh, become one of his many victims caught in the web of his sociopathy and negligence. So, you know, Anne Rule has interviewed many in the fraudulent doctor's life, but she actually spent a lot of time interviewing Debbie, his wife. And I'm going to tell uh, a little strange twist to that at the end, too. So Anthony was born in Buffalo, New York. He grew up to attend college and went to Lehigh University in Pennsylvania with hopes of becoming a doctor, just like his father. He had several rejections into medical school, which this should always be a, a big red flag. <laughs> I know. Right? And we've when we've done like Dr. Death and yes, all that stuff, like yes. this guy had several rejections into <laughs> medical school. So he attended medical school. Uh, he said, all right, well, I'll, I'll go somewhere else. And he mm-hmm. went to um, the San Juan Bautista School of Medicine in San Juan, Puerto Rico. So they let him in. And I know Puerto Rico has good medicine because my family's from there, but I think it was just, you know, for whatever reason, they didn't catch whatever they were catching. Whatever, we do it all the time here. Absolutely do. So Anthony met the then 21 year old Deborah Rago while he was in school. She immediately fell in love with him, his family, uh, his family, his charm, and then obviously, you know, the promise, right? Mm. They give a very good promise of future faking. You're, we're going to, I'm going to give you this beautiful life and I'm so in love with you and you're going to have everything you've dreamt of. So in hindsight, Debbie was obviously manipulated by Anthony's charm and false promises so much that when he began to demonstrate some of the earlier warning signs of his character, this is where that cognitive dissonance sets in and Debbie would, would give him the benefit of the doubt because she was so invested and feeling at that time that it was really her job to support her husband, Mm -hmm. you know, together they would start a family. They would have two children together. They'd have a boy and a girl. They had a dog. It was this picture perfect family. She was um, very charmed by his parents and felt, I think there was a part of her that's like, wow, I feel really lucky to be selected by this family of such prestige that I think that's part of the cognitive dissonance is that I have to make sense of this because I don't want to lose what sure. I think this is. So shortly after they marry, they have the, the, their children. Anthony would um, have his first affair, first of many. So Debbie's father at the time said only to forgive him once. He said, forgive him once, but if he does it again, then you need to leave. This is your one. Get your shit together. Oh, my. Right? So she ends up staying faithfully by his side, always giving him the benefit of the doubt, which in time certainly begins to wear on her because as we find out, he begins to, you know, it's like once someone knows they can get away with that, then why not? Right. They're going to continue to do that. Right. So he begins working at the local hospital um, and it was evident to many of his colleagues that he was really not at all skilled in medicine. He skated by, <laughs> skated through. You just really don't know what you're doing, well, man. You have no, okay, wait, it just gets so much worse. So he's sloppy, he's lazy, he's making obvious mistakes. So he wouldn't last very long at this hospital. And he, so what does is, what is a narcissist do when they're rejected? He opened his own plastic surgery business. Yeah. Okay. And isolate. guess what, people? He has no background in plastic surgery, but he thought there's money there. And if I can be my own boss and I'm such a narcissist, I'll figure this out. I won't worry at all about all the harm I might be doing to people. His claim to fame was in the late 90s, he had attempted to invent the snap on toupee. Okay. Okay. 
Now, if you go online, there's an actual blueprint of this thing, and it looks terrifying. But he invented the snap-on toupee for men who were suffering from hair loss. And so for a period of time, he actually did really well with this product, and his practice and invention made him uh, very wealthy. So the family was thriving. Okay. So the beginning of this would be the beginning of the end because a patient by the name of Sarah Smith would go to him for a breast augmentation procedure. So he's in the midst of his, I'm untouchable. Look at how successful I am. I can do what I want. I have the best practice. All the while, he has no background in plastic surgery. (laughs) So she comes in for this breast augmentation. She was 26 years old. Um, The year was 1997. So she would eventually die from complications and uh, Pignataro went on to blame her husband for pulling the respirator too soon. So, Mm. you know, here we go is, uh, you know, it's the whole, uh, well, I mean, I didn't do anything wrong. Right. You were the one that decided to end her life. She was going to be fine. Right. So the same year, but before Sarah Smith's case, a woman by the name of Connie Venetti walks into Pignataro's office asking for abdominoplasty which is, you know, essentially you're getting your gut sucked, right? Yes. So Pignataro states that, and, and for, you have to, the reason why I gave the year is you have to think liposuction at that time was a hell of a lot more dangerous than it is now. It's now a fairly common procedure. It's not nearly as invasive. I mean, the recovery time at that time, sometimes people would be in bed for weeks. They had to do yeah. a lot of stitching. They were under right. for a long period. It was a risky surgery, Okay. Much riskier than it is now. Mm-hmm. So Pignataro states that he can, so she, sorry, so she comes in for the abdominoplasty and her insurance guidelines don't cover the surgery. So what does he do as a narcissist? He says, I can stretch the insurance guidelines to cover your surgery oh boy. because, you know, most stomach muscles in the shape of yours uh, are attached to a hernia. So he makes up the fact that she has a hernia (laughs) so he can get her to stay on and he can get his money. So he convinces her of, of this favor. You know, I'll I'll do this for you. You know, you want me to do your surgery? I'll, I'll fix this for you. And he does this because what is going on simultaneously is she is attempting to schedule at another hospital for a related procedure And wanted him to be able to do both of these procedures at once. What he couldn't tell her is what he said was, I don't have any availability there. I can't fit my schedule in there. Mm -hmm. This is the hospital that kicked him out. So he's straight up lying and saying, (laughs) I'll tell you what, you know, I'll take care of your stuff over here and then you can go over there for the other procedure. Sure. Okay. So the truth was that he had actually lost privileges at that hospital. So he would end up um, dosing her. Okay, this is where it gets so wild and so scary. (laughs) He didn't have an anesthesiologist. Oh, no. So he ends up dosing her with his own concoction of pills for anesthesia. He uses a staple gun to shut the wound and her drainage tubes were in wrong and he blames her for that when she comes back. Oh, okay. He's like, well, your drainage tubes are in wrong. And she's like, uh, you put them in. Well, I didn't do anything with that. <laughs> so she ends up with a terrible infection. Oh, God. Which leads her seeking help from the hospital, which he had lost privileges to. So as this gets better, when she first goes in to him, 
he's like, oh, you're going to be fine. You know, we'll just staple this back up and it's just an infection. And she's like, this is not good. So she goes then to the hospital. So the narcissist he is, he goes to that hospital. He walks in, accuses the doctors at the hospital of seeing his patient, mm. goes up to her room, views her charts, tells her that she's okay to discharge, visits her room and tells her she's fine. Oh God. He's then escorted out by the hospital and told by another doctor that he had been negligent with this patient. Wow. This doctor calls up and was like, Anthony, this is really bad. He's like, yeah. no, it's just, it's fine. <laughs> he's like, this is really, really bad. But everybody knows he's so incompetent. So shortly after the police would come to find out that one, he was not trained or certified in plastic surgery. Yeah. Shock. (laughs) He's making up his own rules as he goes at, nor did he have a registered nurse or anesthesiologist at his practice. I can't. So he continues to practice as his narcissism was clearly a cushion for his incompetence. So he saw himself as a superior surgeon. He's like, wow, I mean, they fucked it up over the hospital. They just, I mean, the staple gun from Lowe's worked perfectly fine. Oh boy. I made that part up. So, but he did use a staple gun. I mean, the whole thing. I mean, it works. So now we bring in this detective by the name of Frank Sedita, who plays a big role in this case. And he stated that the turning point was after he interviewed Dan Smith, Sarah Smith's husband, who Anthony had blamed for Sarah inevitably dying after the breast augmentation. This is what Frank said. He says, we were very hesitant about this case at first, he recalled. He said, we thought maybe it was just a malpractice suit. But when we got into the investigation, we found out that his conduct was so incredibly egregious that it became a criminal case. So Debbie would sink into a deep depression at this time, and and it was caused by endless instability and despair, she starts to feel, right? Like, how much longer can she defend him? So she begins experiencing some physical pain down her neck from an injury, and she was finding it harder and harder to sleep. So this is where her health starts to decline a bit. Just to be clear about what I what I'm talking about with the detective is he was saying if it wasn't for Anthony's response, they may have thought that maybe this guy really just made a mistake, but it was clear that he projected and externalized blame so badly that they realized, no, this guy has no remorse. Wow. So they turned it into a criminal investigation. Right. So on June 8th, 1998, Anthony uh, pleaded guilty to criminally negligent homicide and was sentenced to six months in jail, five years probation, 250 hours of community service, and a fine of $2,500. If that isn't privilege, I don't know what is. Wow. Yeah. So he would have to surrender his medical license, and Debbie would wait for him. Okay. She later identified herself as an old-fashioned Italian wife. What she didn't know was that Anthony had another woman waiting for him. Oh, yeah. Okay. But of course, like we know with Ted Bundy, Anthony was a model prisoner. He used his ability to educate himself with books to get ahead. He'd become not only addicted to, to that, but Debbie had been on pain medication for her neck. And while he was, before he was in prison, he would become addicted to, to Debbie's pain medication and not having it in prison was a problem. Yeah, right. Very much. So he found an illicit chain that could bring heroin inside the walls. So this would help him remain calm and his habits were never discovered. So he was scheduled for an early release. So he was doing all of this stuff and then probably being on the opiates, being able to stay at a level of yeah. not reacting. Yep. 
And so he looked like a model prisoner. Yep. So as time passed, his marriage clearly would begin to suffer. Um, you know, he comes out of prison. She wants to give him another chance. Uh, but the affairs would ensue and there would be more fighting. Debbie sticks by his side, defends any threats of his license or practice. She's faithful despite the knowledge she had about his other lives, including his relationship with tequila and heroin. He had gone into what I believe was a narcissistic depression. He was unable to get a job. He was using their funds to get his own apartment. But Debbie at this point begins to fight back. She starts to change the locks in the house when she finds out about an affair from the husband of the woman Anthony was cheating on Debbie with. So she was getting emotionally stronger. Sure. So what happens when the target becomes emotionally stronger? Oh, well, we got to double down. So on May 9th of the same year, Debbie begins to experience excruciating stomach pain and was admitted to the ER. The doctors initially thought it was about a pancreatitis, and in June, she begins to feel worse. So she starts to uh, wake up on days that she can't even get out of bed. Anthony would start doing the cooking around the house for her, and would make sandwiches for the kids. But after a while, the food stopped tasting right to her, and there was this metallic taste um, that would stay on her tongue after she ate the soup. And she would start, Anthony would start looking at her as if she was losing her mind, right? Like any good gaslighter will do. Because the kids would, wouldn't respond the same way to their food. So by the end of June, Debbie was having trouble remembering things. She couldn't get out of bed. She would walk into one room of the house and forget why she went in there. Her condition would continue to deteriorate and she would have to quit work altogether. So she would begin to have trouble walking. And after going back to the hospital, she couldn't tell her doctors about July. She couldn't remember. She had lost an entire month. It became a blur. So, she, of course, Anthony shows this lack of concern, is convinced the doctors that it was due to her gallbladder and that needed to be removed. Because, you know, he's the king of all doctors here. He does great <laughs> yeah, work. He's exceptional. <clears throat> so they do a test on Deborah's red blood cells and it shows signs of poisoning. Right. So further tests reveal no that. Shit, yeah. Really? Right. Oh, my God. So shocking. <sighs> Man, talk about being locked into an abusive relationship that your mind doesn't even go there because no. you can't even no. believe that's what's happening. So further tests reveal that Deborah had been ingesting nearly lethal amounts of arsenic. Ugh. Scientists tested Deborah's hair follicles to determine how long she'd been ingesting the poison. So the, f the first theory is that Sarah Smith, Dr. Pignataro's patient, uh, that her family may have done something to do, had something to do with Deborah's poisoning, maybe as a revenge. But the problem with that theory was that Sarah Smith's family moved many states away from the Pignataro family. And that would, it would take living with someone or being constantly exposed to them. Yeah. And trust. And trust. I mean, he's making her food. Yeah. So police start to ask Deborah what she ate before falling ill. And the only thing that she remembers eating right before getting sick is the soup served by her loving husband, Dr. Anthony Pignataro. Right. A forensic test reveals that Deborah had consumed over 29,000 milligrams of arsenic. Wow. She should have died. Oh, yeah. So the police suspect that Deborah's husband, obviously Anthony, was intentionally poisoning his wife with arsenic. They believe he was using the soup, the only food that sounded good while feeling sick, to do it. So now he's arrested again. He's charged with intentionally poisoning his wife. Prosecutors in the case find evidence that suggests that the reason why Anthony asked the hospital doctors to perform surgery to remove Deborah's gallbladder was because the arsenic would have killed her during the surgery. Okay. 
So in Anthony's eye, the medical community would see that as a normal response to an operation that sometimes kills people, just like what happened with his patient, Sarah Smith. Well, yeah. maybe she just died going under. Mm-hmm. Anthony, Plausible deniability absolutely. or whatever. Absolutely. In this whole time, Anthony's mother is fighting for him, fighting for the marriage. You need to work this out. You love each other. So he pleads guilty to the charges and was sentenced to 15 years in prison. Mm. Mm-hmm. Since being released from prison, he moves to South Florida. I'm not going to even insert a Florida joke right there. With all of our true crime from Florida. And changes his name to Tony Hot. Oh, oh what? <laughs> Get this. He currently has a profile on eldercare.com mm-hmm. where he advertises his services as a trustworthy senior caregiver oh. in South Florida. Okay. Authorities in Florida are aware of the former doctor and are monitoring for potential future criminal conduct. So... Here's, here's the uh, miraculous nature of this case. I think that Debbie, through her fight to eventually leave him, and and I left a lot out. She lost custody of the children for a long time. Mm-hmm. They went into social services. Like there was just a lot that really tore up this family, and so she became she became incredibly sicker. He was, you know, under all this investigation. The kids were really affected, but she, through all of this, would eventually, you know, like a phoenix, literally mm-hmm. gain back her mobility. With the, eventually, it was like it started with the help of a walker, and then increasingly better. Okay, and and she learned to drive again. But she she was short of death when Anthony had been sentenced. So I bet. Here's creepiness. So Rule finds out later that an interview from 1998 that she had assumed was Debbie Mm. was actually Anthony's mistress, Tammy Maxwell. So when Rule finally met the real Debbie, they bonded instantly and Debbie was finally able to rejoin life and leave her house. Mm. She wanted Rule's book to be a cautionary tale for other women. She wanted to thank the people in her life who saved her and locked away the man she wanted dead Rule believed this was a reasonable request. Did you like the storytelling? The way Anne Rule wrote like that. The... I like the way that she writes. I think she's very detailed. I mean, the story, mm-hmm. this guy's story, I think there's so many doctors like this, sure. unfortunately, that that part made it a little dry for me. Sure, because we've, we, we have studied this, studied this a lot. But yeah, I think understandable. I think what kept me going was the survivorship of Debbie and how she mm-hmm. really, after all of this, came out remarkable considering what she had been through and oh how gosh, she was so close yeah. to how she should have died. Yeah. And then got her kids back and now has a life again. Well, and I think that's probably what I mean, Anne Rule was an incredible advocate for her victim the victims that she wrote about and the different situation the different stories that she wrote about she was like a like what you were talking about with ted bundy's uh, all the people that came in contact with ted bundy it's like she was a real a huge advocate for those kinds of things you know for all victims rights and everything so i imagine that was her favorite part too right i think telling that story and and she goes into more depth in the book about her interviews with Debbie once she knows it's actually the real Debbie and the time that she spends with there her family. And, yeah. and that part was really sweet to read because I think Anne, 
like you said, was an advocate and really was passionate about her writing. It wasn't just mm-hmm. to exploit stories. It wasn't just investigative journalism. Like right. she really cared about the story and then the survivors of the story, which right. like she did with the women in the Ted Bundy, the stranger beside me. Right. And I, and you know, she talked to, she used to talk about like not wanting to be a writer cause it seemed like it was too hard. And then yeah. she ends up writing like 4 million books and everything. So, and I imagine that came from this passion for that. I think so. Yeah. I ended up watching a movie that was based on a different story in that book. So it's a movie called 12 Desperate Hours. It's a a lifetime movie that was based on a different story in the same book that you. Yeah. There's a short story at the end. So they made a movie out of that. Okay. (laughs) It's probably like, what story are you talking about? (laughs) No, no. I knew there were more than one. It's I didn't know which one you were going to talk about. But uh, the movie, it centers on Val, who finds herself and her young children held hostage by Denny when he forces his way into her house after committing murder that day. The movie is a lifetime movie. It's directed by Gina Gershon. Okay. And it stars Samantha Mathis, Harrison Thomas, David Conrad. And if you, it's a thriller. If you like lifetime movies, I think you'll like this. It a, lifetime does a lot of true crime movies like this, like from the head. I'm like, what I'm remembering is a million years ago in the eighties or whatever, the burning bed. Oh my God. Famous yes. movie with Farrah like Fawcett. Duran's hungry like the wolf when she's driving down the road. Yeah. yeah rem- see that. how, see how famous that is to us. See mm-hmm. how like that is so, because those were some of the very first true crime TV movies that came out. Richard Masser was in that one, you know, like it was, and he was very famous at the time. And so these are the, these true stories. And now, now that's very common, but then in the eighties it wasn't. And so this is along those kinds of lines. I mean, I understand that most of us think of lifetime when we think of like their romance movies and all the Christmas movies that come out, which we, you know, have guilty pleasure. We watch all the lifetime Christmas movies and stuff, but they also have a huge library of all of these like true crime. And a lot of them apparently from what I'm learning are, you know, Anne rule books. <laughs> They're oh, from yeah. Anne rule stories, you know, stories that she amplified. So anyway, um, I watched this movie. I thought Samantha Mathis was great. I thought Gina Gershon did a, a great job directing. But, you know, our audience isn't necessarily going to watch Lifetime movies. However, you very much might want to read the Anne Rule True Crime. They call it the Crime File series. And this book was number eight in the Crime File series. So cool. Yeah, check it out and uh, check out the movie if you like that sort of thing. If you want to see the other story that's in this book after Kathy told you about the first one, if you want to see the other one, check that movie out. And uh, we very much thank you for listening. Thanks, Kathy, for taking us through that. Yeah. Another doctor. Another incompetent doctor. Oh, <laughs> failing, like getting rejected from medical school after Well, it's school. like when the the serial killers get rejected from being on the, you know, crack a security squad at the Walmart or whatever. They get rejected from being a cop or whatever. They're always like trying to be the thing and then failing miserably. It seems to be like surprise. It's not part of the DSM criteria for bad doctor. Jeez. Thanks so much for that. Thanks for listening, everyone. This has been an episode of Terror Talk. My name is Shannon. And I'm Kathy. Sleep safe, everyone.